Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. There is a great concern that unless you have a very clear standard, you will turn many, many elections in the United States over to the judges. The progressive agenda is dead on arrival because of the Supreme Court. So if you're talking about Medicare for all or Green New Deal or banning voter suppression, or banning dark money in politics, or gerrymandering, and you don't have a plan to protect your agenda from the Supreme Court, then you really can't be taken seriously as a candidate. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the courts and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of that for Slate. And this past week brought us, da-da, in a smog of confusion and ambiguity, the Mueller report, kind of. In fact, what we got was a four-page summary of hundreds of pages of Mueller report from the Attorney General. And in the coming days and weeks, an almighty wrangle fest in Congress will determine how much we see of the actual report. Uh, You can rest assured we will cover what is actually in the Mueller report thoroughly and completely on this show once we know what it says. But we need not rely on summaries or spin to talk about the proceedings of the U.S. Supreme Court which is what we are going to focus on this week with a dissection of the gerrymander cases heard on Tuesday coming up in a minute. Now, later on in the show, we're going to dig into this issue of court packing, something that was completely unthinkable as a discussion topic a year ago, but with Mitch McConnell's dogged focus on high-speed confirmations for federal judges, Donald Trump has now seated about a sixth of the federal appeals court bench, and the issue is starting to surface, believe it or not, early on the campaign trail. Democratic candidates are talking openly about what to do about Donald Trump's Supreme Court if they capture the presidency and the Senate in 2020. And so we will talk with Aaron Belkin, one of the architects of Pack the Courts, which is a newly minted effort to take very seriously the notion of straight up court packing on the left. But first, we turn to the actual Supreme Court as it exists today, which heard arguments this past Tuesday in two important gerrymandering cases, raising questions we have discussed a lot over the years on this podcast. The issue in the cases, whether there could ever be an unconstitutional political gerrymandering is one we actually thought would be resolved uh, definitively for all time last term. Uh, It was not. Uh, I'm not going to bury the lead here. The pair of cases, one comes out of North Carolina based on congressional maps drawn by Republicans, the other out of Maryland based on congressional maps drawn by Democrats. This case may turn on Brett Kavanaugh, and I'm not even going to bury the bombshell. Brett Kavanaugh seems maybe to possibly be inclined to vote with the liberals. What? Slate's Mark Joseph Stern was in court for oral arguments, and he joins us now. Mark, welcome back. 
Thank you so much for having me back on. Am I right, Mark? It feels a little like uh, gerrymandering Groundhog Day, where we're going to talk about political gerrymanders yet again, you and I. is that Are we just on the endless snipe hunt for the finally justiciable political gerrymander? Is there any reason to believe ever, ever, ever will be found at the U.S. Supreme Court? We're absolutely doomed. This is, this is the legal <laughs> world Russian doll. I want to be Natasha Leon here. Um, look, <laughs> we all thought, as you said, this would be settled by now because last Last term, we heard the same question, and everyone said, well, Justice Anthony Kennedy is finally going to reveal whether he thinks the courts can step in and block uh, egregiously gerrymandered maps. Uh, But instead, the court just punted on a technical issue, kicked the cases back down, and they percolated right back up. So here we are again, uh, spent two and a half hours in the courtroom watching Justice Elena Kagan do her very, very best to sort Sort of uh, persuade an on-the-fence Justice Brett Kavanaugh to sidle on over and vote with the liberals to maybe put some real constitutional limitations on partisan gerrymandering. So before we get to this week, why don't you set the table again? I know you've done this before. We know that there is a world in which unconstitutional racial gerrymanders exist, and we know at least theoretically how to fix them. The problem with political gerrymandering, Mark, is question mark. The problem is that uh, essentially no court has adopted a test and no plaintiff has proposed a test uh, to gauge and fix partisan gerrymandering that satisfies a majority of the court. So it's not super difficult to detect a racial gerrymander, right? You can usually figure out uh, by looking at a map when legislators have drawn district lines to dilute the vote power of racial minorities. Um, It's quite a bit trickier to determine when a partisan gerrymander, so drawing district lines to dilute the voting power of uh, a specific class of voters, uh, crosses a constitutional line, or if it can cross a constitutional line at all. There are all these tests that we've spent so long spilling ink over, uh, the efficiency gap, partisan symmetry, right, proportional representation. There are a gazillion different ways that you can theoretically gauge when a partisan gerrymander goes so far that it entrenches the majority party and totally dilutes the power of votes for the minority party. Um, But the Supreme Court has never gathered together five votes to say, yes, we like this particular test and we're going to instruct the courts to use this test to analyze maps and strike down ones that go too far. So yet again on Tuesday, the justices spent a very long time trying to decide which test could satisfy them, which was consistent, which made sense, uh, and which might just kind of muddy the waters and leave federal courts totally befuddled and confused over what they're supposed to do with partisan gerrymanders. If I were to offer a metaphor, the house is flooding. Everybody agrees that it's flooding. People who have... uh, initially drawn these maps say, we really, really want to flood the house. There's no dispute that it's happening. We're just fighting over whether we're using like a yardstick or measuring tape to figure out how to determine the flood. Yeah? 
Yes, precisely. Or whether we're going to bail out the flood with tablespoons or buckets. Um, and it is worth noting that in these cases, the legislators did say, uh, we're doing partisan gerrymandering. Like, that's what we're up to right now. And the reason is because courts have put real limitations on racial gerrymanders, uh, legislators think they can sort of get out of any trouble by saying, look, we are not doing a racial gerrymander here. We aren't suppressing black people's votes. We're suppressing Democrats. Democrats' votes, or in the case of Maryland, Republicans' votes. So there's all this smoking gun evidence, um, but the courts have yet to act. Right. So what Mark's referencing is David Lewis, the Republican chairman of the redistricting committee uh, in North Carolina, literally says at a public hearing, quote, I propose we draw the maps to give a partisan advantage to 10 Republicans and three Democrats because I don't think it's possible to draw a map with 11 Republicans and two Democrats. And he actually says he wants to be super clear uh, on the record that this map is to gain partisan political advantage. That's all in the record. So that is effectuated when the maps are drawn. The question is, is there some constitutional violation? And then, as you say, the harder part, is there a remedy? Mark, can you just for one second, because you, you mentioned it up top, tell us just the brief history of both this North Carolina map and this Maryland map? Because as you say, these are repeat performances. Yes. So the North Carolina map at issue um, was drawn after the Supreme Court held uh, that North Carolina had engaged in a racial gerrymander. So even Justice Clarence Thomas agreed uh, several years back that North Carolina had drawn district lines uh, on the basis of race and said, you got to do it over again. And that's when North Carolina Republicans got together and said, oh, well, you don't like racial gerrymanders? Well, how about this? We're just going to go whole hog on a partisan gerrymander. We're going to screw over as many Democrats as we can, and we're just going to ignore race. Now, whether they actually ignored race, that's a different question. But the basic point is that, as you said, the guy drawing the map said, I'm going to make 10 districts that go to Republicans and just three that go to Democrats. And the reason I'm doing that is because I don't like Democrats, and I think electing Republicans is better. Uh, Maryland, there's a, a kind of similar, slightly less flagrant effort uh, uh, among Democrats to suppress the votes of Republicans. You have this district, the 6th district, that was historically uh, Republican and uh, had sent a Republican congressman to Washington for many, many years. But after the 2010 census, when Maryland legislators got down to redistricting, they said, you know what, we don't like sending this Republican to Washington. We think it would be better if this person were a Democrat. So why don't we shuffle a bunch of Republicans out of this district and then shuffle a bunch of Democrats into it and then we'll make it a Democratic district. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, their goal was to create a Democratic district. They succeeded wildly. They essentially diluted the votes of a ton of uh, rural Republicans in the western part of the state um, by creating this bizarre sort of snake-like shape that roped in a bunch of liberal wealthy the Democrats who live in the Maryland suburbs, just, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and this, this case actually reached the court uh, last year, the Supreme Court, uh, and the court punted it back down on standing questions and said, we're not going to deal with this right now. Uh, we're we're going to let it kind of simmer and percolate back up. And again, it just came right back up. Like It was just very clearly a punt because the justices felt like they had enough hot button issues on the docket already. 
And we should say this out loud because I think we've uh, elided it a little bit. But Justice Anthony Kennedy, we thought, I think, uh, was going to stay on uh, in order to solve uh, gerrymandering. And he didn't. Uh, And Justice Brett Kavanaugh takes his place and doesn't have much of a history. Uh, We don't know uh, what he thinks about this. Uh, That changes over the course of the day. But I, I think it was fair to say going into these cases, one expected Kavanaugh to align himself with the courts for conservatives. But we didn't have much to go on until this week. Well, we had nothing to go on except the general sense that he is very conservative because before this, Justice Kavanaugh sat on the uh, D.C. Circuit, which just doesn't really hear these kind of gerrymandering cases that come up from the states. Um, And so he's kind of a blank slate, but everybody presumed that he would side with the conservative justices and basically say, you know what, If, if Justice Kennedy wasn't willing to take that final step and put a real limit on partisan gerrymandering, I'm not going to be the one to step in and do it for him. That was the presumption just on the basis of who he is as a judge and what his what his jurisprudential priorities are. And I want to add one more bit of color to this conversation because the challengers in North Carolina were represented by Emmett Jopling Bondurant II, who uh, we learned uh, argued uh, Westbury v. Sanders, a Supreme Court case in 1963 that first established that constitutional districts need to contain the same numbers of people. That was in 1963 when he was 26 years old. Let's just have a listen to his oral argument uh, in that case. This case presents in bold relief the very clear question of whether a state may deprive its citizens of more than half their representation in the House of Representatives by their failure to properly apportion congressional districts long after massive shifts in population have deprived these districts of their representativeness. Now, he's 82 now, uh, and let's listen to a tiny bit of his opening from this week. This case involves the most extreme partisan gerrymander to rig congressional elections that has been presented to this court since the one-person-one-vote cases. So, Mark, I think it's fair to say that the surprise really does come when Kavanaugh, who uh, I think was quieter when the North Carolina case was argued and then perks up a little when the Maryland case is argued, starts to sound as though he believes there might actually be constitutional limits on partisan gerrymanders. Uh, Here he is telling uh, Maryland Solicitor General Stephen M. Sullivan that he thinks that maybe they should just own that. The 6th District was heavily influenced by the decision that had nothing to do with partisan politics, and that was to remove a crossing across the Chesapeake Bay that was that, well, The stated goal was 7-1. For some, it was. But it was a goal. Governor and others. Well, for some, the I governor, mean, for, the speaker. I mean, I don't think you should run away from the obvious. I mean, the crossing the, the bay thing is – not very persuasive, given all the evidence that this was just 7-1. And, you, you know, you got Easton grouped in with Carroll County, uh, Talbot County, Wicomico County grouped in with west of Baltimore. That just 
as opposed to just crossing the bay, when everyone's saying we want 7-1. So, Mark, that's where he's beginning to sound like we should just call a spade a spade and say that this is a problem? Yes. And I think it's worth noting that Justice Kavanaugh, like Chief Justice Roberts, is a Maryland voter. Uh, Kavanaugh actually sort of revealed his deep knowledge of Maryland geography by sort of summarizing the absurdity of the 6th District. Uh, And he sounded genuinely distressed by what legislators did here in Maryland. Uh, Before this, you heard Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch try to sort of shift the focus of arguments away from the threat to democracy that gerrymandering poses and focus on this very complicated question of what the right remedy is, what the right test is. Uh, This sort of took arguments away from the central issue, which is that gerrymandering is really bad, that partisan gerrymandering really does seem to pose a genuine threat to constant Constitutional liberties. Uh, and Kavanaugh said that loud and clear during arguments over the Maryland case. I mean, he and, and Justice Kagan almost sort of teamed up to tell Sullivan, like, this map is unacceptable. This map is grotesque, uh, and it's clearly an effort to burden the votes of Republicans. That was not something I expected, and it they weren't really the questions of a justice who was trying to help out uh, the state in its defense of its gerrymander. They were the questions of a guy who's genuinely distressed uh, over this problem and wants to maybe find his way toward a real solution. Is it fair, Mark, to go further and say, you know, here he is in a colloquy with Paul Clement uh, representing the state of North Carolina, and and he's actually not just saying that uh, partisan gerrymanders are really bad, but he's going so far as to say they're unconstitutional, right? Why can't the Equal Protection Clause be interpreted to require something resembling proportional representation. So, Mark, he's actually willing to say it's not just that these make me feel bad about myself. It's that they're flat out (laughs) unconstitutional, right? Well, I I think that he may be undecided about the correct test or perhaps the correct constitutional provision to cite here. Um, But I do think that he is pushing uh, Clement to acknowledge that there is a fundamental equality problem here uh, and that partisan gerrymandering is just so dramatically out of line with one person, one vote, right, with uh, all of the voting rights cases about ballot access, about First Amendment right to political expression and association. Uh, Clement pushed back really hard. I mean, I think he did a characteristically good job trying to just make the justices throw up their hands and say, well, we can't solve this. Um, But again, uh, Kavanaugh refused to let this go. And much more so than the other conservatives, um, he he really wanted to nail down the constitutional harm here and work his way from that harm to a solution, maybe a narrow one, maybe a limited one, but a real solution that judges can impose to help out voters who feel disenfranchised by this practice. So, so here we do get to the sticky wicket, which is how do we find a test, right? This is what you you opened with. Um, did you get a sense from sitting at argument that we were getting any kind of consensus around, okay, this is justiciable and this is a test we could use? Well, uh, I think that toward the end of the Maryland arguments, uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Kavanaugh seemed to be working their way toward a, a stable test that would help courts police the 
worst of the worst, as Kagan put it, really just the most extreme gerrymanders, while letting most uh, political but not egregious redistricting uh, go through without a court challenge. So uh, what Kagan and Kavanaugh seem to point toward is the smoking gun evidence in this case that uh, legislators in Maryland really did target Republicans, essentially retaliate against Republicans because of their political affiliation. And what Justice Kagan said was, look, if we say that the basic problem here is the flagrant evidence of retaliation, presumably we'll strike this map and then legislators will get, you know, a lot more careful. They'll become a lot more careful about acknowledging their intentions. And at that point, uh, it will require evidence of a truly heinous gerrymander to uh, bring courts to the point where they can infer uh, intent to retaliate on the basis of political association. That was Kagan's basic idea. You know, once the smoking guns retreat, once legislators get smarter, then most courts aren't going to have enough evidence to strike gerrymanders if the court adopts this somewhat loosey-goosey test. Uh, And that was Kagan's way of compromising, I think, of putting something out on the table that's a middle ground that says, we're not going to go in here and analyze every single map. What we're going to do is look at the truly horrible ones. Maybe there will be evidence, smoking gun evidence of retaliation. Maybe there will be such irrefutable proof in the form of warped shapes, right, and just really unbelievable line drawing that this was designed to suppress votes on the basis of politics. Um, But otherwise, we'll let most maps stand. And I think that even if it's a little loose, even it's a little blurry, I do think that it is a limited, narrow compromise that maybe, maybe Justice Kavanaugh would be willing to sign on to. And it sounded as though some of at least the conservative justices, I think particularly Justice Gorsuch, were floating the idea that maybe the court doesn't need to get involved at all because some of the states have had, uh, by way of referendum, these uh, independent redistricting commissions. So maybe the states are going to sort this out on their own. Uh, How did that fly? Well, that's pretty rich to hear from a conservative justice uh, because the Supreme Court only upheld independent redistricting commissions by a five to four vote several years ago with Justice Kennedy um, providing that fifth vote to uphold them. Now he's gone. There is a real chance that the conservative justices could strike them down. So to have Justice Gorsuch say, oh, well, we already have the solution in the form of these commissions that I may think are illegal, uh, it, it, it prompted some knowing laugh from other justices, including Justice Ginsburg, who kind of went toe-to-toe with uh, Paul Clement when he adopted that argument. Um, And and I don't think that it was a very persuasive argument because we all know that that is a tenuous solution, that the federal judiciary may well turn the other way on those uh, those commissions. But uh, the bigger issue, perhaps, is that neither Maryland nor North Carolina has a clear path toward creating those commissions. Um, They've been created by ballot initiative, which neither of these states really has the means to do um, without legislative input. Uh, And so Gorsuch's proposal, his solution here, is no solution at all for voters who live in many, many states that just don't provide that kind of ballot initiative mechanism that would take redistricting out of the hands of politicians. Can you 
talk briefly, Mark, about this question of the judiciary doesn't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole. The judiciary does not want to insert itself into the midst of this thicket. Let's listen to Justice Breyer articulating this. The problem I think your side throughout this morning has to deal with, a problem, is from this side of the bench to some people looking at the prior cases, there is a great concern that unless you have a very clear standard, you will turn many, many elections in the United States over to the judges. This is Paul Clement making the same point, essentially warning the justices, do not, do not politicize the court. If you get in the business of adjudicating these cases, these cases will come. They will come in large numbers, and they will come on your mandatory appellate jurisdiction. And once you get into the political thicket, you will not get out, and you will tarnish the image of this court for the other cases where it needs that reputation for independence so people can understand the fundamental difference between judging and all other policies. Mark, that's it, right? That's at the heart, the the, the beating heart of this controversy is that the last thing the courts want to do is be deciding close elections, right? And if Justice Breyer is anxious about that, how can you possibly get five votes for any standard, even if you could pick a test? Right. And that's what Justice Scalia said, uh, actually, years ago when um, he tried to shut the federal courthouse doors to political gerrymandering once and for all. He basically said, look, we get it. Like, this sucks. We're not going to go out on a limb here and defend it. We just don't think that judges are capable of policing it on any way that will sort of instill confidence or trust in our decisions among the public. That is a legitimate issue. I I don't mean to downplay that. Um, But the truth is that courts have been drawing and redrawing uh, legislative and congressional maps for a really long time. Uh, When the courts find racial gerrymanders, they often take it upon themselves to draw a more neutral map. Um, And those maps are usually pretty good. They usually create a fairer district that is more likely to see competitive elections, which is all anybody is really asking for here. So I do think that the concern is, is quite overstated by people like Clement, because you've already seen decades of federal intervention in redistricting, and it's gone pretty well. In fact, I would even say that judges and the experts they employ to help them tend to draw better, fairer maps than the politicians who are trying to protect themselves and their parties. Maybe it's fair to say that even the language of judges picking winners and losers sets it up for if we actually thought that the judges themselves were picking winners and losers, then this would be a horrifying politicization of the court. But what you're saying is the judges are taking a playing field that is absolutely corrupted almost beyond recognition and making it level. And that is kind of what judges are meant to do, right? Uh, Right. I I certainly think so. Uh, And if you look at the example of Pennsylvania, the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court last year struck down the state's congressional map under the Pennsylvania Constitution uh, as an unlawful partisan gerrymander. Uh, The court employed an expert to redraw the map. It did all of this pretty soon before elections. uh, And it all went off more or less without a hitch. I mean, you heard 
heard lots of Republicans complaining, oh, we, we want our gerrymander back. This is going to throw it into chaos. This is judicial lawmaking, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, we had really competitive elections in Pennsylvania. And the uh, the vote was mostly split between Democrats and Republicans. And the map reflected that. You had a pretty even distribution of seats. That feels fair. You don't see Pennsylvania voters out in the streets claiming that their elections were stolen by a court. That seems to me to be kind of like a microcosm of what federal courts could be doing um, if the Supreme Court ends up swinging left in these cases. Just an atmospherics question, Mark. Do you have a sense from sitting in arguments that the court is bothered or fussed one way or another, either by the politicization of the courts because of what Donald Trump is saying and, you know, these questions about vote fraud and vote suppression and voting generally, or perhaps on the other hand, you know, is Justice Kavanaugh bending over backward to try to look open-minded and fair again because of what he went through this fall? I mean, is there a a way in which the world outside the court was laced through some of the arguments you saw this week? As you know, the justices try pretty hard to shut out uh, the outside world from arguments and pretend like Trump isn't Trump and that the Kavanaugh hearings never happened and that everything is totally normal over at 1 First Street. Uh, And to a certain extent, I do think they succeeded. And I absolutely think it's possible that Kavanaugh simply wanted us all to praise him as an open-minded and flexible jurist um, who will then come down very hard against federal court intervention here. That is a a very possible, if not likely, uh, outcome. But, you know, I think that uh, even Chief Justice Roberts was looking at these maps and expressing some disdain for what went on here. Um, When Maryland's Solicitor General tried to defend them as neutral and not as a, a gerrymander, Justice Kavanaugh basically looked somewhere between incredulous and offended. I mean, he knows that that's BS, um, and he didn't want to let the Maryland Solicitor General get away with it uh, just because he thinks he has five votes to uphold the district. Um, So I, I do think politics played a role as they must in a case that is fundamentally about politics. Um, But I think that all the justices tried their best to pretend like this isn't happening against the backdrop of the voter fraud paranoia, of the crackdown on suffrage, and of all of the crazy stuff going on in the broader voting rights world. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and the Supreme Court for Slate, and he was at the gerrymandering arguments this week. Mark, as ever, a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me on. Always a delight. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history. And what a period we're living through right now specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. 
Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. I want to take a moment to talk to you about our membership program, Slate Plus. If you're hearing this, you're listening to the regular version of our show, which is awesome. But if you signed up for Slate Plus, you could enjoy this show commercial free and you get access to bonus segments and extended versions of your very favorite Slate shows. It's only $35 for your first year and you can sign up free for two weeks just to check it out. And that's not all. By signing up for Slate Plus, you'd be supporting this show and all of the journalism that we do here at Slate. We know you value our coverage and you know how urgent the work is now more than ever, but we need your help to do it. So sign up for Slate Plus and help secure Slate's future. To learn more and to begin your free two-week trial, go to slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you very much. And now back to the show. For our next segment, uh, we want to talk a little bit about court packing, because not unlike the Green New Deal, court packing is becoming a rather unexpected litmus test in the Democratic primary. Now, this is an idea that would not have dared speak its own name in any earlier election that I can think of, uh, is now resoundingly on the table. And that's in no small part because by any construction of constitutional norms or rules, Neil Gorsuch now sits in a seat at the Supreme Court that was actually stolen from Merrick Garland. For years, uh, Democrats that I know tended mostly to just stew about that. Uh, But more and more, they're talking about taking some kind of action. And so weirdly enough, in recent weeks, we've heard Beto O'Rourke on his very first day as presidential candidate say that changing the composition of the court was an idea we should explore. Then Senator Kamala Harris told Politico, we are on the verge of a crisis of confidence in the Supreme Court. We have to take this challenge head on. Everything is on the table to do that. Elizabeth Warren said essentially the same thing as did Kirsten Gillibrand. And then we have long shot Pete Buttigieg embracing the idea and suggesting that the number of justices should grow from nine to 15. Republicans pick five. Democrats pick five. Those 10 justices agree on the rest. Uh, Folks, this is some version of court packing. Weird. Dr. Aaron Belkin is a scholar and advocate who designed and implemented much of the public education campaign responsible for helping end the military's don't ask, don't tell policy in 2011. And he wrote about that in his book, How We Won Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Then he launched an advocacy group called Pack the Courts this past October. And in fact, my Q&A with him in Slate about it was, I think, one of the first announcements of that group's intentions to really make court reform a central theme of the 2020 election. And back then when we spoke, I don't think I could have imagined that numerous Democratic presidential candidates would be just openly talking about court packing. And so I actually invited him onto the podcast today so that he could say, I told you so in person. Aaron Belkin, welcome to Amicus. It's such a pleasure to be here. But I would say uh, in the, you know, 
rare events when um, I am right uh, like that, I would never say, I told you so. <laughs> well, you, you find some way to say it. Uh, you've got the next few minutes to figure out a generous way. But you did tell me so. You said, I can move the needle on this. I didn't um, quite believe you. And, and before we get to that, I, I wonder, Aaron, if you could talk a little bit about your background, because before you came to this issue of court packing, you worked a lot uh, for years on public opinion around Don't Ask, Don't Tell and on the trans ban in the military. So can you take us back and talk a little bit about what your history on public opinion and politics and these seemingly third rail issues, uh, what did you learn from all that that you're bringing to the conversation around court packing? Um I've spent 20 years uh, working on behalf of LGBT service members and still work um, defending trans troops from the administration. And perhaps the principal lesson that I learned from those two decades of advocacy is that the Democrats might have overlearned the lessons that George Lakoff uh, taught us 15 years ago about framing. And Lakoff, you know, at the time the, the, the Democrats were in the middle of losing a, a terrible election to George Bush II um, for the second time. And and Lakoff came along and he said, you know, we need to get slick about framing, just like the Republicans are. And so, you know, when they create a bill that, that that's a handout to the power and coal companies, they call it the Clear Skies Initiative. And when they do that, uh, they win. And so we learn we need to learn to be slick like them. And 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 in my sense and my colleagues' sense working on behalf of LGBT troops is that that that's exactly wrong. And that, that the reason that the Republicans need to be slick about packaging and framing is because their policies are based on lies, because they're of course trying to help billionaires and injure women and workers and people of color and usually don't want to tell the truth about that. Our issue as Democrats is different. We just need to tell the truth about what we stand for. And that's that's what we did in the in the Don't Ask, Don't Tell and uh, and transgender military fights. We didn't follow Lakoff's advice by finding a different frame. We we just used the Republicans' frame, and you know they were saying that LGBT troops hurt the military, and we said fine, like let's look at the evidence, and then let's just have a conversation with the public over time in the media based on research about the evidence and the data and the truth. And those became winning strategies. And I would say that's the major lesson I learned from the from the struggles. Now, Aaron, I want to be clear that you come to this as you came to Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the trans ban um, as a political scientist and advocate, uh, not as a constitutional lawyer, right? Um, yes, I am a political science professor, but my narrow disciplinary background is um, military studies and uh, and international security. Yes, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a court expert. Um, so I am coming at this uh, sideways. So so I think you've just answered the question when you talked about Lakoff, but what was the original idea behind Pack the Courts and, and most notably calling it Let's name this thing after the thing that almost tanked FDR. I mean, that's a, a bold move, right? Pack the courts is is not a thing that Americans would say like, hey, I could warm to that. That that has been historically a successful good move. The idea is that you really can't have a democracy when courts are stolen. And it's not just that the Supreme Court was stolen, but but the Republicans arguably blocked more lower court appointees in the last two years of the Obama administration than had been blocked. Uh, in the history of the United States. And if Harry Reid had not gotten rid of the judicial filibuster for lower court appointees, 
than uh, the total number of, uh, of open seats that Trump would have had to fill when he came into office would have been much, much greater. And so the Republicans have been playing a, a ruthless game of judicial theft. Uh, well, not, not a game, a ruthless strategy of judicial theft. And that, that, that compromises democracy. But also the, the, the reason why it's so important to talk about court packing, and, and I think this is what the candidates are starting to get, is that the progressive agenda is dead on arrival because of the Supreme Court. So, so if you're talking about Medicare for all or Green New Deal or banning voter suppression or banning dark money in politics or gerrymandering, and you don't have a plan to protect your agenda from the Supreme Court, then you really can't be taken seriously as a candidate because this court is so radical that it will not allow Congress to restore the democracy and and fix the problems that are plaguing this country. So that was the inspiration for the project. Now there's a different question about why we're calling the project Pack the Courts. And so, listen, I understand a lot of people are not happy about that framing. We lost our most powerful board member, who is an advocate of court expansion, the, the policy we favor, but doesn't like the, the term court packing. So I get that. But the issue is, imagine yourself on Sean Hannity, and Sean Hannity is yelling at you, you're trying to pack the courts. You know, I couldn't honestly say in response, no, I'm not, because that's exactly what we're trying to do. And so it's better, you know, following the lessons of the don't ask, don't tell repeal struggle, just to be honest about what we're trying to do and not not try to slither out of it by by referring to what we're doing as unpacking or unstealing or, or, or some other word that, that the public really wouldn't understand. So the first reason for using the packing language is because it's honest. Um, the second is because people understand what it means. And the third and final reason is because we're going to have to deal with the baggage of the FDR story in any case. So why not just deal with it honestly and head on instead of trying to circumvent it. And the truth about FDR is that he arguably saved the New Deal by threatening to pack the courts. And so so we're not ashamed about what FDR tried to do. And we think historians have overlearned the lessons and have misconstrued that effort as a failure. So that's why we're referring to ourselves as pack the courts. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I was going to ask you about that. We, we always say, oh, my God, FDR almost tanked his presidency. But in fact, he didn't tank his presidency and he got the Supreme Court to blink, right? That not that the story we should be telling? Yeah, I mean, he certainly didn't tank his presidency. He, he won uh, uh, two more presidential elections after saving the New Deal by threatening to pack the court. You know, I guess historians have different interpretations, but, but one pretty plausible interpretation of what happened is that by threatening to pack the court in a credible way, he moved the courts in a direction of really being open to the evidence and really to shy away from using crazy constitutional interpretations to tank the New Deal and allowing him to to save the economy and, and arguably save the republic. So, yeah, we don't see that as a failure at all. I want to just do one tiny piece of constitutional housekeeping before we uh, go any further, Aaron, and that is uh, to the listeners who are like, wait, this is unconstitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that says that we have nine justices. There's nothing that even fixes the number of justices. We have uh, an act of Congress, the Judiciary Act of 1869, which actually set the number of justices at six. But all of this sort of fanciful notion that there's a constitutional mandate for nine justices and that is immutable, that's all kind of myth-making, right? It's not, in fact, true. And I would argue it's even, in a proactive sense, upside down, because the framers left it up to Congress as a check on the court 
to determine the makeup of the court. And the reason for that was because there had to be some check on an out-of-control court, and Congress is that check. And so if you have a court that is out to subvert the very democratic basis of the country, as is the case today, it is not only allowable for Congress to step in, it is Congress's job to step in and check the courts. So talk a little bit uh, about that claim, Aaron, because, of course, what folks who disagree with you don't hear, oh, this is a court that's subverting democracy. They hear this is a court that is appropriately protecting the free speech interests of campaign donors and all down the line. So so how do you make the claim that this is a court that is in fact subverting democratic prerogatives? I understand that you can be a very cynical person and argue that it's okay to keep black and brown people from the polls because of the phony problem of voter fraud, which doesn't exist in this country. But I would say to any reasonable observer um, who's looking at the data, you know, and this is not a Democratic or a Republican issue, but, but this country is supposed to be based on one person, one vote. And the court has prevented that vision from becoming a reality. And, you know, the voter suppression that's going on now really takes us back to Jim Crow America or, you know, other terrible um, historical precedents around the world in which people are prevented from going to the ballot box because of the color of their skin. And so that's a problem for for, for democracy. I, I understand, you know, there was the Lochner court theory of, you know, a corporations and an individual's right to enter into a contract such that seven-year-olds could work in dangerous factories. And so, you know, I get that you can spin out a, a tale about corporations' right to free speech, but I don't see that as a partisan issue either. I mean, I don't see how it possibly helps any member of the public, Democratic or Republican, if corporations can buy policies and can buy politicians and if bribery is effectively legal with no disclosure requirements, no transparency, that's not a reasonable vision of democracy when that happens. And then, you know, on gerrymandering, um, and, you know, we should be clear, like Republicans have been gerrymandering a lot more than Democrats, but but Democrats gerrymander. And, you know, Maryland is a, is a case in point about that. But the software, the redistricting software has become so sophisticated that what what's happening now is that in states that are controlled by um, you know, one party, you have this intricate drawing of lines at such that basically none of your votes are wasted and, and the efficiency of all of your partisan votes are maximized while the other party um, is forced to waste hundreds of thousands, if not millions of votes. And there's just no reasonable theory of democracy that sustains that kind of rigging. Yeah, I, I get that people will make the claim that that what the court is, is doing is fine, but it just, it doesn't seem American to me to allow corporations to buy policies, to keep black people from the polls, and to waste millions of votes. That's just not democracy. How did this idea, to use uh, Yale Law Professor Jack Balkin's construction, uh, go from being totally off the wall to, in a matter of weeks, months, on the wall? It's just an Overton window question. How did it come to be that something that was seemingly just fanciful and dream talk come to be one of the cornerstone issues 
early in the primary. Well, and, and, and I should be clear that the candidates are not vying to embrace court packing. And in fact, whenever anyone uh, comes out in the newspaper as an advocate of court packing, um, you know, they get phone calls from experts who say, no, 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 you need to endorse other uh, judicial reform ideas like term limits or a, another plan called 555. So we we should talk about that in a minute. But but I take your point that, 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 that part of what's going on is that there's been um, an unprecedented acknowledgement on the part of Democratic candidates, five so far, um, that something needs to be done about the courts and that that conversation has leapfrogged the decades of efforts that some of the progressive uh, judicial reform groups have invested in trying to get folks on the left to care about the courts and to see what's at stake in the courts. And so it's not magic. It's really just garden variety tactics that any advocacy campaign or project would leverage. But it's just about telling the truth to the candidates and to journalists and to voters and to validators. And so so we went um, straight to Pete Buttigieg um, personally and to his staff. And we, you know, we made the case and we said, listen, your agenda is dead on arrival unless you do something to protect it from the courts. And you want to be taken seriously as a candidate, you got to talk about that. Um, and by the way, it's also smart politics to talk about the courts because, you know, in a field of a dozen candidates, um, many of whom understand that they have a pretty low likelihood of prevailing in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. So those candidates are looking for ways to distinguish themselves. And given that the center of the party has been afraid to talk about the courts in the way they need to be talked about, candidates are realizing, hey, there's, there's an opportunity here to really explain to the voters that we are in a desperate situation and we need to have a strategy to rescue the democracy. And then someone who was uh, involved um, with my project um, asked Buttigieg a question at an event in Philadelphia. And we, you know, we obviously, we didn't tell Buttigieg the question was coming, although we had, you know, we had been talking to him and his staff uh, for quite a while at that point. And he answered, um, yeah. I mean, so people actually in the audience laughed when, 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 when the question was asked. And, and Buttigieg said, you know, this is not a laughing matter. The courts are a real problem and, and you should not laugh at court packing um, or at other options for, for re reforming the court. And the very next day, um, you know, as, as we had suggested to him, there were headlines in the media along the lines of there's only one Democratic candidate who's serious about governance and it's not Bernie Sanders. And so I think all the candidates saw that, wow, like, you know, Buttigieg is speaking truth to power. What he's saying is bold. It's brave. It's also accurate. Um, and we need to make that case, too. And and you've just said, and so let's clear it up, that a lot of these folks that I name checked, whether it's uh, Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, they're saying I'm open to something. Uh, everything's on the table. They're not explicitly saying, I think we should pack the court, right? Well, this makes me a little sad and, and, and frankly, a little upset that people in the party are trashing court packing and encouraging the candidates to endorse reform ideas that look good on paper, but that have zero chance of working in practice. I would like to, to explain what I mean by that. Lawrence Tribe, maybe the most brilliant uh, constitutional theorist um, in the country, is saying court packing is a really bad idea. Why don't we talk about term limits instead? Well, term limits look great on paper, but the chance of implementing term limits in practice is zero. It's zero. 
And the reason it's zero is because Congress would pass a law authorizing term limits, and then there'd be a very long window of time between the passage of that law and the point at which the law would start to have a moderating effect on the court. And guess what would happen during that window? What would happen is the court would enjoin and then strike down the law. I mean, the, the, the five conservatives are not going to willingly hand over their power. There's the same problem with um, the 555 proposal that Ganesh Sitaraman is going around selling the candidates on. It has zero chance of implementation, zero. Go back and explain 555. That's what where Republicans pick five, Dems pick five, and then those 10 justices agree on the others? Yeah, or you might have nine justices agree on the others. So you'd have a court of uh, 15 justices. Yeah, ideally five conservatives, five liberals and five moderates. Um, And then if the nine or 10 uh, liberal and conservative justices cannot agree on the five moderates, then the court shuts down for a year. And, And I would argue that the stakes are so high now. They are so high. I mean, we have what is it, 11 years left on the clock to deal with climate change uh, to avoid a planetary disaster, uh, to say nothing of all the democracy emergencies we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, This is not the time to have an academic multi-year conversation about reform options that look good on paper, but that have zero chance of working in practice. And so we, you know, if there was, if there was any lesson of, of the 2016 campaign, it was you need to campaign on bold, clear ideas. And so rather than issuing a 1000 page healthcare proposal that no one understands, and that's, you know, deep, deep, deep in the weeds, you campaign on Medicare for all. Well, court packing is the Medicare for all of judicial reform. It's the best idea. It's a clear idea. People understand it. They can rally around it. It works. It will give us a fighting chance to save democracy. It does have risks, although not risks that are any worse than other strategies, and I would argue actually less risk than other strategies. So that's what we should be talking about as a party. There was a piece in Axios this week that announced that the president is planning to organize his 2020 campaign in part around the idea that Democrats are radicals because they want to expand the size of the court. And so my question to the party is like, do you want to shy away from that like wilted flowers or do you want to have an honest conversation with the public around how radical the court has become, how ruthless the Republicans' judicial politics have become and what we need to do to save democracy? I want you to engage directly with the thing that you just said, which I think is the the heart of why this is so difficult and with why people shy away from it. And, you know, you're essentially saying, look, Let's call the spinach spinach. Let's not bake it into a brownie and say it's a brownie, (laughs) right? Like, have I given you a tagline? And the one side has been fighting a sort of all-out DEFCON 12 fight over the courts, and, and we talk about norms, so let's put it out there. I get it. And yet I think there is such a tendency – I'm just reading to you. I know you've read this quote a hundred times. Washington Post, James Homan uh, interviewing Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, uh, presidential hopeful, asks about court packing. And then he says Bennett, quote, slammed his head on the table four times when I asked whether he thought uh, about other Democratic presidential candidates uh, embracing the idea of expanding the court. He slammed his head on the table four times. And then – 
the quote that is really, I think, you're going to have to kind of respond to, Aaron, quote, having seen up close, says Bennett, just how cynical and how vicious the Tea Party guys and the Freedom Caucus guys and Mitch McConnell have been, the last thing I want to do is be those guys. What I want to do is beat those guys so we can govern again, right? That's his quote. And I think Cory Booker similarly said, you know, tit for tat is going to lead to everybody, you know, mass destruction. I think that what you're saying is the time for we want to be civil, we want to just govern, uh, we want to not become the thing we're trying to fight, that the time for that is over. But I think it's a steep uphill push to say we're going to bring, you know, a gun to a gunfight because I think that that's just not how Democrats tend to govern. And it's certainly not how they tend to talk. And it is assuredly not how they tend to talk about the courts. There are a couple different points in there to talk about. And uh, the first one is is about norms and and the style of political engagement. So I don't think that the Democrats should ever um, behave like the Tea Party. I mean, the Tea Party and 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 most of the Republican caucus, I would I would argue, has committed itself to a vision of politics that is all but authoritarian. And what that means is they don't tell the truth about the evidence. They prioritize party over national interest to an extreme degree. They scapegoat people on the basis of religion and race. So they do things that authoritarians do to subvert our democracy because it's in their narrow partisan interest. So I don't want to behave like that. What I'm talking about is, yeah, it's a it's a hardball strategy. I mean, there's no doubt, um, but it's a strategy that's necessary to restore democracy. So we need to put the democracy back into democracy. So I don't know what value there is to a norm if only one side is adhering to that norm. You know, how valuable are our norms if black people can't vote and corporations are buying our politics and millions of votes are wasted in gerrymandering and the planet is burning um, because of climate change and we have grotesque economic inequality and people can't get access to healthcare and, you know, gun violence, the list goes on and on. I mean, right, like, you know, we're not going to behave like the Tea Party because we're always going to tell the truth. We're going to, you know, change our beliefs when the evidence says we're wrong. We're not going to scapegoat people of color. We're not going to demagogue. We're not going to do things like that. But yes, we are going to reform the system when the democracy um, is gravely under threat. So, so, so that's what I would say about the norms. But I, I think there's another point that's embedded, which is the risk that that these tactics will. Um, provoke re- Republican retaliation and that the Republic, you know, if we succeed in packing the courts, um, the Republicans will retaliate by packing the courts um, at their first opportunity to do so. And I think that's exactly right. I think the Republicans will attempt to re- uh, retaliate by packing the courts at their first opportunity to do, uh, to do so. But here's the problem. No matter what we do, the Republicans will retaliate by trying to pack the courts at their first opportunity to do so. So so the argument that some people make that, oh, you know, if we just put in place a, a neutral reform like term limits, then, uh, you know, this would be a proportionate response and this would prevent the conflict from escalating and would, would avoid fueling a race to the bottom is bullshit. Um, I, I mean, you saw how the respond, uh, how the Republicans responded to um, Barack Obama, who you know had Rick Warren speaking at his 
inaugural who who bent over backwards to take you know a year's worth of Republican input into the Affordable Care Act um, and dozens of Republican Republican amendments. I mean, they met his reasonableness by saying that he was a Muslim. I would argue if we don't do anything whatsoever the next time the Republicans need to pack the court in order to control it, and the next time they have the opportunity to do so, they're going to pack the court. Um, I mean, they've already stolen the Supreme Court. I mean, like, who in their right mind could believe that Democrats' proportionality will somehow, you know, invite Republicans to be moderate um, in response? That, that That is not the Republican Party um, of today. But the difference between court packing and the other judicial reform options is that unlike the other judicial reform options, what court packing allows you to do is to revitalize democracy and pass laws um, to ban voter suppression and dark money and gerrymandering that will at least endure for the short term. And as a result of those laws, the Brennan Center estimates that 50 million new voters would be added to the rolls. Well, that is a political strategy for the Democrats. Adding 50 million new voters to the rolls is good for democracy, and that will make it hard for Republicans to come back and control all three chambers anytime soon um, and to retaliate by packing the courts. And so, yes, there is a partisan dimension to all of this, but court packing is, I would argue, the least risky of, of the strategies because it's the one strategy that can be implemented and that all but ensures that you're going to be able to get laws that survive judicial review that will restore democracy and add voters to their roles. So, so Aaron, we've talked a whole bunch about candidates who are sketching out at least outlines of what they want to talk about. Can you give us the outlines of what Pack the Courts wants to see as the sort of at least the, the, the sketch of what we should be looking at when we talk about packing the courts? Yeah, with the uh, with with respect to the Supreme Court, we're calling for the addition of four seats, and so two of those seats to compensate for the theft of the open seat that President Obama um, should have been allowed to fill, and two of the seats to compensate for Kennedy's retirement because, to the extent that President Trump did not obtain the presidency uh, via legal and legitimate means, then arguably he should not be making lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court. And then with respect to the lower courts, um, we're calling for the expansion of the district and appellate courts um, commensurate with the number of judges who the Republicans prevented President Obama from seating in the last two years of his presidency. I was going to ask you, in 2017, Stephen Calabresi, who was the co-founder of the Federalist Society, published a paper actually proposing to pack the federal courts. And he said, we need a minimum of 260, maybe 447 new judicial seats. He was going to have uh, the federal judiciary increase under his plan uh, by 30 to 50 percent in a single year. And columnists actually across the boards, I confess I was one of them, roasted it. But conservative columnists roasted it. And it didn't happen. And in fact, the the idea of it was shut down uh, from the right as quickly as it was from the left. Does that do you take the abject failure of the idea floated when the Republicans were in control to do the thing you said they'll do next time they're in control uh, to mean that there's no window to do this or that he did it wrong? I can't speak for him. So I, I don't know what his motive was, but but I think that he he probably realized that this was an idea that at some point the Republicans would need to pull the trigger on um, in order to seize control of the judiciary if the Democrats 
um, succeeded in flipping the Supreme Court, and if Hillary Clinton had won, had had deepened the um, the, the Democratic presence in the lower courts. Um, so he was trying to plant a seed in the way that extreme ideas um, often start at the fringe of the Federalist Society and then migrate to the center of the Federalist Society and then work their way into conservative jurisprudence and become the law of the land. My guess, and again, without speaking for him, is he was trying to plant a seed and the party's response was was saying like, okay, we hear you, um, we get it, and this is not something we need to do now, um, and we'll shelve the idea until later. One of the reasons that a lot of constitutional scholars and thinkers balk at what you're proposing is because they feel like in the end of the day, it will demean and devalue the court itself. And that what you're doing is turning the court into a zero-sum political football for all time, and that right or wrong, we like to think that the court transcends politics. What's your response? You know, Tim Burns published a very compelling op-ed in New Republic two weeks ago where he said, look, the, the, the size of the court has changed many times. Um, and when it changed in the past, it was always associated with a flourishing of democracy and with the subsequent um, enhanced, uh, enhanced um, legitimation um, of the court. And so the idea that packing the court is somehow inconsistent with the expansion of democracy or the flourishing of the court itself is, is not right historically. I, I would argue um, that having been said, what has trashed the court's legitimacy is not the proposal um, to pack the courts. What, what, what has compromised the court's legitimacy is a generation of ruthless politics, ruthless judicial politics um, on the part of Republicans to the point at which they have done things like issued the Bush v. Gore decision, which, you know, on the basis of nothing, handed the election to George Bush, um, issued Shelby County, which on the basis of extremely cynical reasons, prevents black people from voting, stole the Supreme Court in 2016, 2017. The court is a partisan institution. The five conservative justices are partisan shills for the Republican Party. And I, listen, I mean, I was in, you know, I, I not was, I am in, in, in LGBT rights um, advocacy and have been there for 20 years. So I deeply understand the power of Obergefell and Windsor and, and you know, very tiny handful of cases, you know, maybe Gruder, Gruder Bollinger, in which the Kennedy court issued reasonable, non-insane decisions that enhanced democracy. But the Kennedy court was an extremely partisan and conservative court if you look at the data of its jurisprudence overall. And things are only getting worse, as, as Brett Kavanaugh was quite open about at his um, hearing when he threatens to use his position on the bench to take vengeance against liberals. So this fantasy that the court is somehow going to you know, like return to, you know, a nonpartisan branch that is, you know, in, in Justice Roberts's grossly disingenuous words are just calling balls and strikes. That's not a realistic understanding of where the court is now. Maybe it's not a realistic understanding of where the court ever was. But the bottom line is that it's not court packing that threatens to undermine the court's legitimacy. It's using the court as a partisan football in the way that the Republicans have been using it. When we spoke last October, uh, you were birthing pack the courts. I was trying to wrap my head around what you were doing. And I asked you, how do you plan to get progressive voters to give a crap about the courts when they just don't? They haven't voted around the courts. They haven't prioritized the courts. In 2016, with an open seat and three octogenarians on the Supreme Court, 
they didn't care enough to vote around the court. How do you plan to message the very, very abstract, wonky notion that the federal courts are kind of a backstop of constitutional democracy when progressive voters just don't vote about that? I think the voters are changing. And I think part of that was what they saw in the Kavanaugh hearings. But I actually also think that that court packing itself is, is is the key to unlock that door because because part of the problem in in helping progressive voters understand the stakes of the courts is that the progressive groups have never given the voters um, any solution that can be pursued to change the courts and and you know the idea that you know if you vote today then 20 years from now the court will render a good decision was not compelling to progressive voters um, unfortunately. I think what's different now is that we really can show the voters that the Supreme Court has spent, I mean, you know, most of American history, but certainly the last generation attacking women and workers and people of color. Um, and that, and that there's actually something you can do about that. So that's, that's part of the case. And the other part of the case is that some of the presidential candidates are reporting that, you know, they expected to go to Iowa and New Hampshire and have voters ask them about healthcare and the environment. And that's exactly what's happening. So, so basically, you know, every coffee shop they go into, people want to know about climate change and they want to know about healthcare. But what's surprising some of the candidates we hear, um, uh, is that the voters also are asking them how they're going to fix broken democratic institutions and what they're going to do about our broken democracy. And so and so I, I think that it, not just with respect to the courts, but more broadly about democracy and the robustness of the political system, the voters really get that we are in deep trouble and they're seeing the connection between Kavanaugh and the theft of the Garland seat and the court and the destruction of democracy and also the policy risks like climate change and healthcare uh, access. And so, um, and so today is a day when we can make that case in a way that was not possible in the past. And that's why five candidates have acknowledged that something has to be done about the courts, um, which is the first time we've heard Democrats talking like that, uh, at least in my lifetime. So is your short answer to the question I asked way up at the top, which is what moved the needle? It's not you all moving the needle or uh, the media moving the needle. You have some sense that the public themselves are starting to resonate with the idea that the court is sort of the, the straight line between any of these outcomes, environment, tax cuts, workers' rights, health care, that the way to get that is through the courts and that's something they're kind of organically starting to understand? I mean, organic is maybe not quite the way I would put it because I think that there's kind of a, um, y- you know, all the pieces of the story are are, are part of the narrative. So, so the voters um, got really upset about Kavanaugh and the voters understand that Trump is is tanking democracy, um, and it's important um, for advocates and scholars and experts to talk to the public and talk to the candidates and to translate what's going on, um, so that there's a there's kind of a back and forth dialogue. So I think that advocacy strategies in a different political climate wouldn't work. And I think the different political climate without the advocacy strategies probably would not have led to the conversation being in the place it is today um, quite so quickly. So I, so I think that all the parts of the story are, are important for understanding why the candidates are talking about the courts. 
Karen Belkin is a scholar and advocate who designed and implemented much of the public education campaign around ending the military's don't ask, don't tell policy in 2011. His book, How We Won Progressive Lessons from the Repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, is a guidebook to how he did that. And he launched this advocacy group called Pack the Courts last October that is attempting to bring court reform to the public discourse before the 2020 election. Aaron, thank you so very much for joining us today. Thank you. And that is it for this jam-packed rock'em sock'em episode of Amicus, the Not Mueller Report edition. Thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch, our email is amicus at slate.com. We love your letters. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts, and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back to you with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.